Uh, We're continuing in our Knowledge Project series on the fruit of the Spirit, and tonight uh, we're going to look at long-suffering, gentleness, and goodness. Galatians 5, 22 and 23, I trust you are familiar with this by now, but if not, you'll hear it tonight and again when Pastor teaches next week. The Apostle Paul writes, he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, Against such there is no law. There's no measure against these things. We have them as much as we have need of them. And so tonight we're going to look at long-suffering, gentleness, and goodness. Uh, Before we get into the specifics of these three, a few remarks uh, on the fruit of the Spirit in general and that which we're considering over the course of this series It's important to understand the precedence that God puts on relationships. Jesus would teach us in the New Testament, he says that we uh, were to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then we were to love our neighbor as ourself. And so to summarize the the objective, these values that govern the kingdom-centered life is first, that we love God with everything we have. That is the most, without question, it is the most important relationship in your life. But second to that, he admonished us that we would love our neighbor as ourself, which is to say the diligent care and concern that we live with for self, uh, making sure that, that we have the necessities and the comforts of life. Jesus challenges us that in the kingdom that we are to have that same attentiveness and care for our neighbor. He does not simply mean the one that resides at the property next to us, but, but whoever we would interact with in the course of life, that we love them as ourselves. And so to summarize this kingdom life, it's to love God and it's to love everybody else. This is all about relationships. And I would admonish us tonight that the health of, of our Christian walk, the joy or the measure of joy or lack thereof we have in our Christian walk, will really come down to the health of the relationships we build within the church. I've observed over the course of my life, and I, you know, I know I have an old hairline, but I don't consider myself old, but even in my few years, I have observed those who while they attended church two or three times a week, never built relationships with people in the church. Uh, They built relationships with people they worked with, but the problem was when they turned 60 or 65, they retired, and the social life that they had built for themselves over the past 35 years was gone. Well, this is the beauty of the church, is that God has given us a family, and it's God's will that we build relationships with those in our family. The beauty of the family of God is it doesn't matter uh, if you're here in Terre Haute, if you're somewhere in Europe, if you go to an island in the Pacific, the Bible says that we're baptized into one body by one spirit. And so the beauty of it is, is the family of God transcends time and place and culture. And it's our job to invest ourselves in these relationships. 
Now, I'll give you fair warning. As you do that, you're going to discover that there's some people that you gravitate to more easily. There's some that may irritate you. And I know, God forbid, we would never think that to happen in the church. But that's just facts. That we all have different upbringings. We have different family cultures. That's one reason pastor teaches on church culture so consistently. To make sure that we don't allow perhaps our broken individual culture or our individual preference of family culture to work to the dividing of the body. And so we do what Paul says. We endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit. We guard the culture of unity among the corporate body. The reason I'm telling you this is because when Paul is writing to us about the fruit of the Spirit, these are not just some uh, mystical, figurative things that, no, these are real-life things that we need in the context of relationship. And so sometimes I think we refrain from leaning into the building of relationships because we understand in the process of building a relationship, it is inevitable that there's going to be some things we have to work through some things in ourselves, some things amongst one another. And so Paul is telling us that when you were filled with the Spirit, God put this fruit in you that was designed to work in the context of relationship. So we don't need to fear this and and just be individualistic or, or remain isolated. We need to lean into one another, build relationships in the church, build relationships in the family of God, Uh, Just a couple weeks ago, I was in Eureka, California, and the pastor there was walking me through the redwood forest, and it's absolutely amazing. You're standing at the base of trees that are two, three hundred feet tall. They're massive, and you're literally stepping over the roots. They don't go deep into the ground, but the strength of those redwood trees is that their roots are intertwined with one another, and so it is in the body of Christ. It is God's will that our lives be intertwined one with another. This is the strength of the church. But to ensure the health of those relationships, Paul says God gave us this fruit to exist in the context of relationship. And if we give ourselves to the cultivating of these things, we can have healthy marriages. We can have healthy families. We can have healthy interactions at work. We can have a healthy church family. But It's also imperative to note that he speaks to us in this this agricultural concept. Now, we can go all the way back to the Old Testament. God spoke through the prophets with this this paradigm of thinking. Through Jeremiah, he talked about uh, pulling up which was planted. He said there's some things you're going to have to plant. He was using the analogy of agriculture to help him understand how the kingdom of God comes. When Jesus comes in Matthew 13, he's teaching to them, What we call the parable of the sower, again, he's teaching to them concepts about how the kingdom comes, but he's using their understanding of soil and seed and the process of growth to help them understand. Well, the same is true here. The fruit, fruit fruit does not start as fruit. How does fruit start? Fruit starts as seed. Where does seed go? Seed goes in the soil. So again, It's this process of agriculture that he is speaking to us about to help us understand how the kingdom works. This is a process. So there's none of us that are going to attain the full measure of the fruit overnight. It's a process. In the same way the farmer has to evaluate and work uh, according to the season, there are seasons in this. 
There are seasons of planning. There are seasons of pruning. There are seasons of growth. And so to give ourselves to this requires first that there is intentional action, that we remain consistent, we remain disciplined, and we recognize there are seasons. But saying all that, when the Word of God, which is the seed, is sown into the fertile soil of a submitted and committed heart, the result is a supernatural love of God that allows us to exhibit uh, these characteristics even in difficult circumstances. These are not New Year's resolutions. They're not things that we produce of our own accord. This is the result of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Amen? So let's talk about long-suffering. What does this mean? It comes from a Greek word which simply means to have patience, to have endurance, to be constant, steadfast, or to persevere. We live in a convenience-driven culture. I would submit that patience is becoming increasingly rare, and while I'm guilty of enjoying the luxuries of the convenience we have, uh, it would be wise tonight to recognize that also comes with some dangers. Uh, the city that we lived in in Europe, if my memory's correct, had two, maybe three drive throughs in a city of 700,000 people, and those were at McDonald's. Uh, America brought drive throughs to Europe. That was it. There was no other drive-through. The concepts uh, of convenience that have shifted so much of the industry in America is foreign to much of the world. And listen, I love to be able to order it on my phone and pull up in front of the sign, and I don't even have to get out of my car. You just roll the window down, they'll open the door. It's convenient. But if we're not careful, we can allow the convenience of the American way to infiltrate the kingdom And while I love the luxuries of convenience in the American world, I must tell us tonight there is very little in the kingdom of God in terms of convenience. And so while the culture that we live in thrives on making things more convenient for us, God is not as concerned about accommodating the kingdom to our preferences. He doesn't consult our opinions or our wants. And so while these things contribute to perhaps the diminishing of patience in the American culture, the trouble is that we can bring what we enjoy in the American way into the kingdom, and that is just not so. And so patience, none of us like it. It's it's not enjoyable, but it's necessary. Paul uses this word long-suffering, which, uh, you know, I call that the refined terminology. The less Paulish is simply to to reverse it and to separate it. What is long-suffering? It's to suffer long. Doesn't sound nearly as pretty, but it sure makes it easy to understand. But it's not simply to suffer a long time. It's to do so with the right attitude. This is the work of of Christ in us. Your notebooks, if you have them, have this quote. It says, we have heard it said that patience is a virtue, and according to the dictionary, a virtue is a quality of good and human conduct. The world says that we learn to be patient, but the Bible says patience is a gift of the Holy Spirit. Patience 
is a direct result of God's Spirit in us. Therefore, we need to focus more on giving the Holy Spirit control of our lives than on developing specific characteristics. What does this look like? Now, again, I'm, I want to frame this thought from what we just read. This is not about uh, cultivating this specific characteristic as much as it is surrendering control of our lives to the Lord. Let's go back to this agricultural concept. John 15. Jesus enters into dialogue with his disciples, and in verse 5, he tells them this. He says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. He wants to make sure they understand this. I'm the source. You might get the benefit of displaying what looks good, but don't you ever make the mistake of thinking you are the source of good. I'm the vine. You are the branch. And if you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus is the vine and we are the branches. Jesus is the source. And so it is only, only as he is working in our lives to the extent that we maintain consistent fellowship with him is the fruit displayed in and through our lives. He would continue in verse 7 of John 15. He said, if you remain in me and my words remain in you. What does this look like? This is what I think it looks like. We remain in him by the Spirit. And he remains, his word remains in us by study. And so it is that a life of devotion requires both a fellowship in the Spirit. This is to be a person of prayer. It also requires the discipline of Bible reading and Bible study. It's not either or. He said that you must remain in me. Now, I understand that in John 15, Jesus is standing in his humanity, talking to his disciples in his, in his earthly ministry. And we don't live with the luxury of having the incarnate God here in flesh speaking to us. And so it was in the course of this dialogue, even his own disciples are wrestling with this. And well, wherever you go, we want to go too. And he tells them, I'm going where you cannot go, but don't worry. When I leave, another comforter will be with you. And he said, he who is with you now shall be in you. He was telling them that you have followed me and fellowship with me in my flesh, in my earthly ministry. But when I ascend into heaven, into my glorified state, and I pour out my spirit upon you, you will now fellowship with me by way of my spirit. And so for us here tonight, we're not following him in his humanity. We follow him in his spirit. We have a spiritual fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And as we fellowship with him in the spirit by prayer, and we read and study his word, we hide it in our hearts. We're remaining in him, and he is remaining in us. There is a promise of fruitfulness And he would say, you may ask whatever you wish. Now, I I wish I could stand here tonight and and tell you that 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 means that you're free of trial and you're going to get a new car and a bigger house, but that's not what he's talking about. He's saying that you may ask for whatever fruit you have need of. 
So when you are suffering long in, in Dan McLeod's uh, Dan McLeod's well of patience is far insufficient. Just remember that if you remain in me and my word remains in you, that as the branch you can draw from the vine. You're not supposed to be the source of this. God did not ask you to suffer long by yourself. He was telling you, if you stay connected to me, the source of all sufficiency, I will give you the patience that you have need of. He would say in verse 8 of John 15, Herein, when you do this, is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. So when he speaks to us of asking whatever we want, he Listen, I think there's other scriptures we can use tonight to encourage us to ask God for miracles of healing and breakthroughs and all the blessings that we desire. That's not what he's talking about in John 15. In John 15, he's drawing from the concept of agriculture and the growing of fruit in our lives. And he's saying when you're struggling, when you don't have enough, when when God's trying to grow long-suffering and gentleness and goodness in you, You can ask me what you have need of. You come to me and say, God, I'm struggling with being patient. Because let me tell you, the alternative is dangerous. Just ask Abraham. Ask Abraham what impatience will will cost you. A lifelong of problem and frustration. So rather than act recklessly, out of our impatience when we're suffering long, we go to the vine and we say, I don't have enough in me to deal with this the way I need to deal with it. Please pour into me the patience that is necessary to endure or to persevere in a Christ-like way. James would write of our perspective and attitude in adversity in, in James 1, 3 and 4. He says, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. So patience is working something in us. When the Lord puts me into a circumstance that demands the work of patience in my life, Patience is working something in me. That's what James said. Stop resisting this. Stop praying for a way of escape. God has allowed the process because that's in in the world of agriculture, you can't bypass process. You have to let the process of patience have her perfect or complete work. And when you do this, You may become perfect or complete and wanting. It means you will lack nothing to be who God wants you to be or to do what God wants you to do. Now, I'm not going to lie to you here tonight. Suffering is never fun. But I would also tell you, if you suffer right, you never suffer in vain. Now, I know we may use the words waiting and and patience interchangeably, but they are not the same. Waiting speaks to the activity. Patience speaks to the attitude. 
We can wait and grumble and complain and by our unwillingness to submit and our unwillingness to draw from the source who is Jesus Christ, we can resist the work of patience in our lives. But when I recognize that I have no control in the outcome, but I can control my attitude, and I submit to the process, and I let patience start to have its perfect work, what happens? It does for me the same thing it did for Jesus. The writer of Hebrews said that he, the captain of our salvation, was made perfect or complete through suffering. It's not that he lacked anything, but there was a maturity that came about in his humanity so he could fulfill the will of God, and it happened through suffering. The writer of Hebrews also says, these are 2 and 10 and 5 and 8 of Hebrews, if you want to make note of that, 2 and 10 and 5 and 8. He said that he learned obedience through the things which he suffered. Now, it's important, I think, we frame the idea of suffering with the right perspective tonight. Not all suffering is dire or uh, uh, of extreme nature. It could be something that's just unpleasant. It may not be life or death. It may just, it may be like sand in your shoe, just a, a constant agitation. Or perhaps it is something more severe. But whether we're talking about something small or something large, this is what I do know. Scripture is unequivocally clear that regardless of the circumstance, God has evidently in his sovereign wisdom chosen to allow this even if for just a moment or a season, so patience can work in my life. But there's not one of us that likes it. It's our human nature to resist it, to want a way of escape. And while I think we can hold to Psalms 23 and remind ourselves that this is a valley that we're just walking through, yes, one day we are coming out of this trial, it's also necessary that while I'm walking through there, I don't have the attitude of somebody who's waiting, but somebody who's exhibiting patience. Somebody who is suffering, but suffering the right way, so their suffering is not in vain. And when you do that, you come out of that looking a whole lot more like Jesus. Let's move on to gentleness. What does gentleness mean? It's a kindness. It is to have a tolerance or an awareness of others that influences your conduct. These next two, gentleness and goodness, they, they have, uh, I, would, I would consider, a great deal of overlap. There's much similarity between the two. I think goodness goes a little bit deeper, and we'll consider that in a moment. But gentleness is what I would, I would call an attribute of conduct. Goodness would be an attribute of, of you or of character. But gentleness is really speaking to us of our conduct. It's kindness. It's, it's talking to us about the manner in which we do things. Now, uh, let's, let's consider this idea of love for a minute. Uh, I know in modern vernacular, love has been reduced to a feeling, and the word is thrown around uh, somewhat recklessly, but love is not merely a feeling. Love is an action. 
And that's why when the scripture speaks to us of the love of God, it is always demonstrated by way of God's action. While we were yet sinners, God commendeth his love toward us that what? Christ died for us. So the scripture is saying God showed you he loved you, not just because he told you, but by his action. Words without action are empty. And so what the scripture is speaking to us here of this concept of kindness is really love in action. If there is love, it will produce an action, and I would submit to you that that action is kindness. This quote is in your notebook, uh, author Calvin Miller. He said, ego is the opponent of gentleness. When ego takes over, gentleness disappears. There is a difference between gentleness and weakness. Gentleness is a characteristic of God that the Holy Spirit plants in his followers. Some people might argue that God's power and, uh, might negate his gentleness, but that is not true. God is simultaneously gentle and powerful. How many times have, have we observed this, even in a setting like was here on Sunday? Uh, the power of God may be present and moving in such a notable way. I mean, you can, it just, it fills the atmosphere. It's just an overwhelming power of God. And while one person is just deeply moved under that profound manifestation of power, somebody else who may have just as dire of a need is almost unmoved. Well, could not the same power that is so profoundly moving them move them? Of course. But why isn't it? Because God is a gentleman. He is not going to override the will of somebody. It is your submission, your willingness, your indication to receive the gentleness of God. Yeah, he's powerful. I'm telling you, the, he is very powerful. But he's gentle. In fact, on that, on that, on that day that, that Palm Sunday comes from, which we'll celebrate here in just a few weeks, he mounted a donkey and rode into a city. And you read it in Matthew. It said he came gently. Who would have thought that the most powerful king the world had ever seen would make his, his prophesied entrance into that great city and it would be defined by a word like gentle. But this is the nature of our God. And so it is that when God indwells the believer, that it should be that that characteristic of God starts working through the individual. Now, I wish, I wish we, could, we could bypass process in the development of fruit. I wish the moment that I got the Holy Ghost, I would have got the graduation certificate and celebrated the completion of the master class that, that I had reached the full possession of gentleness in that moment. That's not how this works. But as God allows you to walk through circumstance and trial and in the context and in the friction of relationships, you start to see yourself as you engage with other people. A conflict at work, and you realize, oh, I'm not as gentle as I thought I was. A disagreement with your spouse, or a situation with your children, 
a driver cuts you off coming down 40 and they don't let you merge when you're getting on 70 and all of a sudden something comes out of you, something rises up in you and you realize, oh, I've, I haven't quite mastered gentleness just yet. So what, what does this look like in real life? Well, Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, he said, the servant of the Lord must not strive but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach and patient. He's painting a contrast here. The servant of the Lord must not strive. This is uh, to fight. To strive is to engage in a war of words, to be quarrelsome in your manner or your conduct. So Paul is, some context here, he's mentoring this young man, Timothy, who is about to assume uh, roles of great influence and leadership in the church. Timothy, you're anointed, you're powerful, God's going to use you, but I want you to hear me. The servant of the Lord must not strive. You cannot be quarrelsome or argumentative. This cannot be your natural disposition when you conduct yourselves in relationships. Instead, instead of being like that, be gentle. And in the very next verse, verse 25, it's not in your notebook, but he said, we are to instruct those who oppose us with gentleness. This is easier said than done. Because when you are challenged, when you are opposed, everything in your human nature rises up. And it's everything but gentle. But if you develop a keen sensitivity to the Spirit, when your will rises up in that moment, you'll feel the Holy Ghost grieve within you. Because like John said, I must decrease And he must increase. And it's in the friction of these relationships when I realize the will of Dan McLeod has a disposition to strive and not be gentle, I have to put the brakes on. I have to restrain myself and I have to go back to the vine. And I have to draw from the source because I don't have this in myself. And I know some of you might think you do, but you don't have enough of it. And I need to get connected to the vine. And I need to draw from Jesus his gentleness. So it is exhibited through my conduct towards others. So they see Jesus in Dan McLeod and not Dan McLeod in Dan McLeod. This word gentle, you'll find the same word in 1 Thessalonians 2 and 7 when Paul is describing how a nurse would care for a child. So now he's giving you a visual with the same diligent care, the same cautious movement that a nurse would care for that young child. This is what it is to be gentle. See, we are not free as people of the kingdom, as followers of Jesus. We are not free to say whatever we want to say. We don't have the liberty to act however we want to act. We are restrained by the Word of God, and we are are instructed by the flow of the Spirit in our lives, and it should come out in this gentle way. Truth itself is confrontational. When you tell somebody that they must repent of their sin, 
that they must be baptized in Jesus' name for the remission of sins, that they must receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, they must be born again to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Truth by itself is confrontational. And so it is that we must be considerate because the word is already sharp. That we do not allow ourselves in our personality or our conduct towards others to become unnecessarily sharp because the word is already sharp. Consider now how, how that doctor would take a sharp object. But, but what do they do? They use it gently and with great precision. I've never been in an OR. I, by the grace of God, I hope I never end up in an operating room for myself or, or to view it. That's just not really my interest. But I'm willing to take a guess tonight. There's never been a surgeon that walked in there with a scalpel. Just... He's got the right tool. But it has to be exercised with gentle precision. And this is what... This is what Paul's trying to communicate to us, is that we must have a gentleness in our conduct towards others because we recognize what we have is powerful and it, it is inherently sharp. It is, it is challenging and confrontational by nature. And so in our stewardship of the Word of God and in the, the stewardship of our lives, we must take diligent care in being gentle in our conduct one towards another. Now, I think Pastor Harpole is a phenomenal example of this. Uh, he, he referenced a message that he preached some time ago that I tried to find, but I'm not sure if we have it, but it was called, Can I Cut You? And there's many times when you hear pastor in the pulpit, uh, you know, he just kind of slides that knife in there and he smiles while he does it. It's a real gift. But he's cutting you. What's he cutting you with? The word. Because the word is inherently sharp. He's precise with it. But have you ever noticed that, that while he may be bold and like a man on fire in the pulpit, when you interact with him outside of here, what's he like? Gentle, calm, patient. Why? Because Jeremiah said the word is like a fire shut up in, my, in the delivery of a word from heaven. There is a fire inside you. But in the conduct of relationship, there's got to be a gentleness. Now, I know, I know that there's always some that think, well, I just, you know, I'm a man. I'm stronger than that. Listen, gentleness is not weakness. In fact, I would submit to you that gentleness is strength. Because gentleness is not the absence of emotion, but the power to moderate emotion. You know, I just, mm, no. You just have too much of you and not enough of him. Because if you have more of him, there would be a restraint of self and a flow of gentleness. Now, where does the rubber meet the road? This is where, this is where it gets real. When you're at the restaurant and your food comes out and it's not what you ordered and it's not hot and you just get out of a two-hour church service, and you haven't eaten all day, and you're hungry, and you're tired, and you're a little bit agitated, if you're not careful, 
you can speak or act out of that agitation. And now that waiter or waitress is seeing you. But if you would have drawn from the vine and allowed gentleness to bleed into your conduct, influence your tone, even though there was mistakes and mess-ups, they wouldn't have seen you. They may have seen Jesus. See, this is the reality of the fruit of the Spirit. It was given to be shown in the context of human interaction. There would be no need for this stuff if you lived on an island by yourself. But you don't. You're part of a family that's, that's made up of different people and different upbringings. And you're going to interact with people at Meijer and Walmart and wherever you work and wherever you shop. And I promise you, I promise you, there's going to be people and there's going to be circumstances that rub you the wrong way, that provoke you to frustration, to act out of your human nature. But that's why we're connected to the vine, so we can draw what is necessary to be gentle in our conduct. Jesus exemplifies this kindness so frequently in his earthly ministry. Whether it's dealing with the lepers, if it's going out of his way to walk through the city of Samaria to talk to one woman who was rejected and beaten down and emotionally distraught at Jacob's well in Samaria, or if it's being willing to walk into the home of Zacchaeus while others criticized him for fellowshipping with the sinner. This is the kindness that Jesus lived his life with. And so as we go about our daily lives, as we are interacting with our spouse, our children, members of this church, people we work with, someone at a restaurant, we do it with this at the forefront of our mind. Their salvation is always more important than my self-comfort. There is a restraint of self so I can draw from Jesus the gentleness he lived with, the gentleness his kingdom is governed by. And I know that may not be natural to you. Listen, it wasn't natural to me. These are things I've had to learn as I have walked with the Lord, that there are areas as great as we may think we are, that we have profound deficiencies, perhaps because of our upbringing, circumstances we've walked through, trials we've endured, family dynamics, whatever it may be. But the good news is that if I get connected to the vine, that vine puts into the branch everything it needs for the fruit to grow. And if I just stay connected to Jesus Christ, if I'm a person of prayer, if I stay in the Word, He will keep flowing into my life the measure of grace that is necessary to have a gentleness in my conduct so even when the circumstances don't provoke it, and by every carnal reason I should be angry and frustrated and agitated and taking it out on whoever is at fault for this situation, instead there's a gentleness because it comes from Him. Goodness. This so similar to gentleness, but I would, I would say is a little bit deeper. It doesn't speak to us simply of our action, 
but, but much deeper to the, the inward part of us. The word itself means to have uprightness of heart and life, kindness. One writer called it the twin fruit of gentleness. But it causes us to consider more than just the action. This word, goodness, is only used four times in the Bible. What's so unique about this word, theologians would tell us that this word was not used in secular Greek, which means this word was, was created exclusively for use in the Scripture. It was never used prior to the writing of Scripture, and it was not used in the secular culture outside of Scripture. And so it was as if God was trying to communicate something that this is exclusive. What I'm talking to you about is exclusive to people that are a part of my kingdom. 3 John 1 and 11, Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that doeth good is of God, but he that doeth evil hath not seen God. Your notebooks contain this quote. Goodness is one of those ambiguous terms that we use in comparing one thing to another. Usually good is the lowest of the good, better, best trio of comparisons. But according to the Bible, goodness is the ultimate because it is a characteristic of God that he shares with his followers through the Holy Spirit. In the creation story, God paused and declared his work to be good. Good is the outcome of God's compassion and creativity. When God declared something to be good, he left no room for better or best. Good was simply as good as it gets. Think with me now to this creation account in Genesis 1. God said, let there be light, and there was light, and we go through the creative account. At the conclusion of every act of God, the Lord saw that it was good. It was complete. It could not be improved upon. It was finished. God had an idea. God spoke it. That idea was materialized. It was finished. It was complete. And God called it good seven times in Genesis 1. And so this idea of good was his word before it was our word. And if the word originates from God, so too must the definition come from God. This is important because when you get into the New Testament, Paul is writing in Romans chapter 8. He says that all things work together for good to them that are called and that love God, called according to his purpose. Now you've lived long enough to know that not everything in your life is good by how we use the word good. Not everything is pleasurable. Not all of life is enjoyable. If by chance you have the secret here tonight and you've lived your life without problems and pain, I would like to have coffee tomorrow morning because I'd like to know the secret. Not all of life is good how we use the word good. And so if Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, can say all things work together for good, it begs the question, just how do you define good? Well, I know how we define good. 
But we're not preaching from our word tonight. We're preaching from God's word. And if God said all things work together for the good, I want to know how does, how does God define good? Well, he tells you in the next verse, Romans 8, 29, that you would be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And so it is. This is see, we're going back to long-suffering now. So it is that suffering is not in vain if you suffer right because the perfect work of patience is to conform you, to make you and I more like him. And so to determine if this is good is not, is this pleasurable? Is it fun? Is this enjoyable? Is it comfortable? Is it producing Christ-likeness in my life? Is it, is it requiring of me a manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit in my life? If it is, it's good. It may not be comfortable. It may not be enjoyable by culture's definition. But when you, when you take off your, your American glasses and you put on your kingdom perspective, if whatever you're walking through regardless of how painful or difficult it may be, if it's producing fruit and Christ-likeness in our lives, it's good. Because good is measured not by how it affects me, but by how it affects his purpose. And I think this is what, what the writer is, is trying to help us understand. Because all the way back at the beginning... Before there was sin, before there was a fall, before the world spun into chaos and everything started unraveling at the seams, it was good. It was perfect. It was complete. Well, what was that? It was, it was a man and a woman made in the image and the likeness of God, fulfilling the purpose of God. That was good. And so in Romans 8, Paul says the definition of good is if the purpose of God is being completed. What is the purpose of God? That we would be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ because that's where the story started. We were made in his image, made in his likeness. The whole work of salvation, the story of God's grace is to restore that image, that likeness, and that purpose. This word for goodness it speaks to both being, this is the essence of our character, our moral uprightness, the disposition of the inward man before God. But it also speaks to doing good, our conduct that flows out of that inward posture. It literally means to be godlike, which is simply a restoration of how God made us in the beginning. So I think it's best said like this. Goodness, it's, you can do your own study. It's somewhat of a difficult fruit to kind of put your thumb on. And real, you know, patience, you can define patience pretty easy. Meekness and love. That. Goodness is a little bit more vague. But I, let me give you my best, my best effort here now. Goodness is godliness. First inward and then outward. First in our inward attitude. But it yields this outward action. 
The purpose for which we are made to be like God is so we would do the good that God does. We are his body. The earthly ministry of Jesus Christ has ended, except for the body, which is now the church. We are the hands and feet of Jesus. If the good that God did when he walked the earth will be done today, it will be done by us who allow the fruit of goodness or godliness to grow in our lives. But goodness, and this is where it goes a little bit deeper than gentleness, goodness is not simply an act of kindness and conduct towards someone else because it deals with the inward man, the moral position of our heart before God. Goodness may even involve a rebuke or discipline. As long as it is done in love and with the intention to help that one conform to what God says is good. This is why the Proverbs would speak positively of disciplining a child. Because it is done from a parent who loves them with the intention to conform them to the image that God says is good. This is why sometimes pastor has to come to the pulpit with a word that cuts us because he is trying to help us conform to the image that God says is good. You, well, how in the world can a confrontational and convicting word that calls me to change and challenges how I live be good? Because it's not judged based on the comfort of receiving it, but on the value of, of what it produces. And if God sends a cutting word to help you conform to what he says is good, it's good. It is the fruit of goodness working in your life. It doesn't feel very good. It's not supposed to always feel good. He said in John 15, when you start to bear fruit, good job. I'm going to prune you so you can bear more fruit. So just about the time you, you walk out of that, you think, man, Brother Barbara, I was doing really good. I, I really rocked that gentleness thing this week. And man, by the grace of God, I was doing great. You wake up the next morning and you've got your back against the wall because the Holy Ghost has backed you into a circumstance to prune you because you didn't just get your graduation certificate. Just about the time you think you have it figured out, God says, okay, the fruit you thought you had, I'm going to cut off you so you can grow a little bit more and then you can bear more fruit. This is why you have to be committed to this, the seasonal nature of an agricultural kingdom. You, 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 know, you get in and everything's going good. God's working in your life. And, and you're six months in. You're one year in. And a little trouble shows up. Well, I thought this was a get out of jail free card. No, it's not. It's just a season of pruning. It's just adversity and trial. It's, it's God using circumstance. And if you'll just hang on, you know, the average fruit tree, it's got to be around a few years, five, six, seven years. Before it yields a full harvest. So you just have to change your perspective. You thought you had reached completion already. You've not reached completion. There's not one of us in this house that has reached completion with our potential in God. But if we stay committed to this process, there's growth and there's, there's victories. Then there's pruning. It's a cycle. It's the agricultural nature of the kingdom.
In Acts 10 and 38, the scripture said that in his earthly ministry, Jesus just went about doing good. Well, why? Because it flowed from he who is good. All the way back to Exodus chapter 33, Moses cries out to the Lord, show me your glory. And you know what God tells him? Moses, I will cause my goodness to pass before you. You know what this tells me? Goodness reveals glory. Goodness reveals God to people. And so when the world sees people filled with goodness, they see, they experience, they feel the glory of God. Now I'm getting ready to close, but go, go, let's go in my, our minds here all the way back to the Garden of Eden. I know they ate off the tree that they weren't supposed to eat. But up until that decision to eat and to converse with the snake, there's some stuff mixed in that verse that I think they had right. She looked at the fruit. It was good for food. It was pleasant to the eye. That's the way God intended it to be. All she should have done was turned around and picked another tree. But God designed the fruit to look good and to taste good. And so I can't help but think that the enemy probably knew that and used that to his advantage to cause her to fall. Thousands of years have passed, and here we are tonight preaching about the fruit of the Spirit. Well, what are you trying to say, Brother McLeod? This is what I'm trying to say. It was always God's intention that people would be drawn by the beauty and the flavor of the fruit. That was the will of God. She just ate off the wrong tree. But she had the right idea. And what I'm advocating for here tonight is it is still the will of God for every single person whose feet touch this soil to be mesmerized, captivated by the fruit. How in the world do you walk out of a funeral with a smile on your face? How in the world do you bury your mother and come to church on Sunday and worship like you did. Oh, my God. I'll tell you how. Because there's a work of the Spirit inside of you that yields a fruit. And when the world gets looking at that kind of fruit, they're going to do the same thing Eve did. They're going to stand there and be mesmerized. Well, that looks good. That looks like it would taste good. It will. It'll change your life. This is the greatest church growth method the world has ever known. People's lives who exhibit the fruit of the Spirit so that people become captivated, 
by this indwelling work of the Holy Ghost in their lives. And when, when there's no reason to smile and there's no reason to have joy and everything in your world should, should be telling people you have no cause for patience. And no, instead, you're walking around with a smile on your face and you're loving everybody and you get out of the car after the person rear-ended you and you're, hey, no, it, it's okay, it's just a car. And they're worried that you're gonna sue them and... You're loving, hey, you, you should just come to church with me on Sunday. They can't fathom that. You know why? Because that stuff doesn't exist in the American culture. But this is the culture of the kingdom. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was pleasant to the eyes, and let it be said that when the people in Vigo County and the people of Terre Haute in Brazil see the fruit of our lives, that it was good for food. I don't know what you've been eating, but if you can have joy like that, then, then, then please tell me about it. Well, you should just, you just come with me on Sunday morning at 1030 and you'll see what this fruit's all about. This is how the kingdom works. Goodness reveals glory. That's what God was teaching Moses. You want to know who I am? I can't show you my face yet, Moses. Why? Because his face yet hadn't yet been created. He wouldn't come in, in the flesh for thousands of more years. But he said, I will show you my glory by revealing to you my goodness, my work, the evidence of my hand at work in the world. And so it is that when the fruit produces goodness in our life and uprightness and integrity before God, that will cause us to conduct ourselves in such a way that goodness flows out of us, that we are seeking opportunities to display that goodness to others. And that goodness will reveal God's glory. That goodness will be to them what that fruit was to Eve. They'll say, tell me more. Tell me more. Where is it you go to church? Why do you act the way you do? Why are you like to tell me more? You know what it is? They're attracted to the fruit. Don't you make a mistake of thinking it's you. I love you, but there ain't one of us in this house who's got it in and of ourselves. But man, when we start drawing from the vine, when I go to God in prayer and I say, God, I don't know how to suffer without you. I don't know how to be gentle without you. I have, there's, there's none good but you, God. I don't know how to do this without you. He says, that's okay. I didn't ever ask you to do it without me. Know your role. You're just a branch. You get the luxury of being, uh, 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 being the peace, the one that the fruit hangs off of, but don't you ever make the mistake of thinking that you are the source of this. I am the vine. You are the branch. Let's stand together. Perhaps this is why the psalmist said in chapter 34 and verse 8, taste and see. See, Eve had that much right. She was seeing and she wanted to taste. This, this is the method that God has desired to use from the very beginning of creation. That people would see the fruit of his spirit in our lives. See it. And that would provoke them to want to taste it.
Let's lift our hands to the Lord. Let's lift up our voice and let's ask God to help us to cultivate this. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your goodness in our lives, your mercy. Father, I thank you that you have invested in us. You have poured out your spirit upon all flesh. I thank you, God, that we don't have to walk through the difficulties and the trials and the ups and downs of life all by ourselves. But you have poured your spirit into us. You have given us a source that we can draw from, that will cause us to suffer correctly, that will give us the ability to be gentle when we have every reason not to be, that when we have no good in ourselves, when the heart is deceitfully wicked and wayward and no man can know it, that that you take out the stony heart and you put in a heart of flesh and you, the only good and wise God, puts your nature in us so your goodness can be seen through our love and our kindness. I pray, Lord, that you would help us be a people that give ourselves to the cultivation of the fruit of the Spirit. Let it be evident in our marriages and our families. Let it be evident in this church body and in this city. I pray you would open the eyes of this people in the surrounding area to see the beauty of the work of God that is happening in the people of God. Let them see the fruit. Let them see love and joy and peace. Let them see the kindness and the gentleness. Let them see the beauty of the work of the Spirit and be enticed by it. That they would taste and see that the Lord is good. We give you praise. We thank you, Father, for your goodness. Bless these people tonight. Let the favor of the Lord be upon them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen. Why don't we give the Lord a hand clap of praise?